Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Yes, Genesis chapter 2. We're continuing our series through the book of Genesis called Origins. We're going to actually have three messages on creation in the garden and the garden of Eden. So Eden is a place of worship, work, and the word. A place of worship, a place for work, and a place for the word. And today we'll be looking at Eden as a place for worship. So Genesis chapter 2, starting from uh, verse 4. Genesis chapter 2, starting from verse 4, we'll read through 17. These are the generations of, of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havaliah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you because... You are wonderful to us. You are kind and compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are the way maker. Lord, you have miraculously caused us to be born again. And Lord, you are light in a dark world. I pray that you would shine the light of your truth by your spirit into our hearts, into our minds. Transform us as we gaze upon Jesus, as we look at who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. So church, what do you think of when you hear the word worship? When you hear the word worship? In his book, Worship Matters, Bob Coughlin writes about a magazine ad he saw for a Christian record label. The ad featured a 30-something woman seated in a chair, With eyes closed and a contented smile, she was oblivious to anything around her while she listened to music on her headphones. The caption simply stated, WORSHIP, all caps, WORSHIP. Now, is that what worship is all about? Someone sitting in a chair, headphones, eyes closed, ignoring the rest of this world, just listening to music. There seems to be something a bit off, but we're going to have to hold that thought and circle back at the end. But for now, I want you to know this big idea for today. 
We worship God because of his intimacy and goodness to us. We worship God because of his intimacy and goodness to us. Last week, Joel Shorey taught us about God at rest, the God who isn't needy or tired, the God who rests out of overflow, out of abundance, and as his people, we rest in him. And we continue now with Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. But you might be wondering, how does Genesis 2, this section, relate with Genesis chapter 1? Genesis 2 seems different from Genesis 1, and yet it's similar. It's talking about the same thing, creation. Well, in case you're wondering, it's not in conflict with Genesis 1, and it's not another act of creation. Think of it like the four Gospels. Each one is told from a particular vantage point, but all describing the same series of events, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it transitions to a new section, talking about the same series of events in creation. And there are four ways that we can see this transition happen some important textual markers. Number one, we see this phrase, there are, these are the generations of. Look at, look at verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The phrase, these are the generations of, is used 10 times in Genesis to introduce new sections. And it usually highlights the origin of what comes next. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And what follows in Genesis 5 isn't about Adam, really. It's about Adam's children, his descendants. It introduces Adam as the father, the source of the human race. So when verse 4 says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, it introduces the heavens and the earth as the source of Adam. But how do the heavens and the earth serve as the source or origin of Adam? Well, obviously, God alone is the creator of all things. But as we'll see in a moment, God created Adam from the dust of the ground. The earth is the raw material, the stuff that Adam is made of. But it's not just this phrase, these are the generations, that indicates a shift in the text. Number two, we see the earth elevated. We see the earth listed first. Look at that last phrase in verse four. It swaps the order. It says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Usually we see heavens and earth. Heavens is listed first. Now it's earth and the heavens. Earth is mentioned first. It's elevated. Our focus now shifts. The narrative zooms into what God is going to be doing on the earth. So chapter 1, if you remember, showcases a God who might seem far off, a God who is beyond time and space. Chapter 2, however, will showcase a God who is near, entering into time and space. And number three, the third textual marker, we see a new name introduced for God. Got to pay attention to this. It says the Lord God. Verse four, once again, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It doesn't just say God, it says Lord God. And up until now in Genesis, we've only seen the word God for creator. God is the English translation of the Hebrew word Elohim. Anytime you see God in the Bible, it's usually El or Elohim. So in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. But that's not the only name for God. We see here in Genesis 2.4 the word 
LORD, all caps, all capitalized. Whenever you see L-O-R-D, all caps, it means Yahweh, the covenant name for God, the God who is near. It's not until Exodus do we learn that Yahweh is the God of the burning bush who identifies with his suffering people and promises to save them. Do you think back? We spent several weeks in Genesis 1. Remember how God is transcendent in Genesis 1. The word transcend means to go beyond. God is beyond any limitations, beyond any flaws, beyond any weaknesses. God transcends. means he's beyond and outside of space and time. As we saw earlier, we saw God alone is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. No beginning or end. No limits. He doesn't change. God alone creates. God alone is sovereign. God speaks the universe into existence with his all-powerful word and also upholds and sustains it by the word of his power. So you can come away reading Genesis 1 knowing, okay, seeing, okay, God is transcendent. He can seem a bit far off. In Genesis 2, however, we see God's imminence. God's imminence, God's nearness. God is imminent. That means he is near. God is personal. God is intimate. And God is knowable. God is not some mystery out there. But here's the amazing thing, church. The God of Genesis 2 is the same as the God of Genesis 1. So the God of Genesis 1, the transcendent one, he now turns his attention to earth. This God, the transcendent one of Genesis 1, stoops down from his throne in heaven to involve himself in the dust, the dirt, the everyday details and messiness of life. It's the same God. And so the Bible gives us this wonderful paradox. The God who is far off is also the God who is near, who comes near, who draws near to his people. It's easy to read this chapter and completely miss these two names of God brought together, Lord God or Yahweh Elohim. As one commentator writes, the compounding of the two divine names, Yahweh and God, Elohim, occurs 20 times in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 to bring together the title of the majestic, powerful God portrayed in Genesis 1 with the title of the personal, intimate name for God, Yahweh of Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Many people today think of God as only transcendent. He's only a God out there. And that's deism. God is powerful, but ultimately too far away, too disconnected from us, and ultimately irrelevant for our lives. It's up to me to figure things out. It's up to me to make my way through life. Or on the other hand, there are others who think of God as only imminent. That's pantheism. God is everywhere and in everything. He's right here. You are God. The tree is God. The universe is God. But Christian theism affirms that God is both transcendent and imminent. He's both. He's transcendent and imminent. The all-powerful God is both far off, beyond our understanding, and yet he's near. He's revealed himself to us. He has spoken to us. And this is what Moses has to teach Israel over and over again. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. God is transcendent. Yet the Lord set his heart in love 
on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all people as you are this day. God is imminent. He's close. He's near. He chooses his people. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So the God who owns heaven, the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, this God is also the God who set his love on his people and cares for the weak. And just one more from Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So we've seen a shift in the text because of these three key markers. These are the generations. The earth is elevated. The earth is listed first. And the first usage of Lord, the personal intimate name of God, Yahweh. And then number four, we see in this section God's intimacy with his creation. We're going to see how much God personally gets involved with his image bearers. So let's look at verses five and six of Genesis chapter two, verses five and six. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. You read verses 5 and 6, and it seems like Moses is describing creation between days 3 and 6. Days 3 and 6, mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. On day 3, if you remember, God separates the land from the sea and creates dry land and plants. But there's no human beings until day six. And at this point, the text says that there are two things missing. There's no bush of the field and no small plant of the field. As I was studying, I was wondering, what do these things refer to? Well, in Genesis chapter one, if we go back, we notice that these plants, these two things that are missing, they aren't given to Adam. On day three, remember, God created two kinds of vegetation, plants with external seed and plants with internal seed, both good, both suitable for food, and both given to mankind in Genesis 1.29. Genesis 1.29, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. That's external seed. And every tree with seed in its fruit, internal seed. You shall have them for food. Now, you look at Genesis 1.29, it's in your handout, and compare it to Genesis 2.5. You see that there's no bush or small plant in Genesis 1.29. It's not there. It's not in 1.29. And here's the reason given by many commentators, and I think this is helpful for us to think about. Bush, right here in Genesis 2.5, probably refers to weeds, thorns, and thistles probably refers to plants that enter the picture after the fall and curse because they weren't there before. They weren't there in Genesis 1. Commentators also think that small plant, again, in in this little section, Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, this small plant refers to crops like wheat, grain, and barley, crops that need cultivation. 
The Hebrew word combination for small plant is the same, interestingly enough, as the combination used in Genesis 3, 18, and 19 after the fall. After the fall, when God tells Adam, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So if these commentators are right, it seems like as early as Genesis 2, we see hints, a little hint, of the coming fall of mankind. And yet, even in the midst of that, God's gracious provision for rebellious humanity. And outside the Garden of Eden, we see God does provide for rebellious and sinful image bearers. He provides for us again and again, people who only deserve his wrath and judgment. Jesus says, for he, for God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5.45. So whether you belong to Christ or not, God's going to send rain. God's going to send sun. God's going to be gracious to his creation. We also notice in Genesis chapter 2, a mist coming up from the ground before God caused it to rain. Verse 6. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. The Hebrew word translated mist could also mean underground spring or stream that could send water up onto the land. And either way, whether that's a mist, a spring, or a stream, the bottom line is God takes care of his creation. He takes care of it. He's not just the God of creation, as we looked at earlier, but he's the God of providence, sending water from the sky and from the ground to sustain life on planet Earth. God's providential care His attention to detail, God making sure he gives us everything we need for life, shows us his intimate involvement with his creation, with earth. But that intimacy gets even better and more personal. Let's move on to verse 7. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The word formed is used instead of create because God makes man by taking material that already exists, the dust of the earth. And the Hebrew scholars point out the word formed, right? The Lord God formed the man of dust. The word formed describes what a potter does. As a potter forms clay, God forms man out of the dust. Let's look at Psalm 139 once again. This is David speaking these words. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. It's encouraging for us to know that God is intimately involved in every single detail of our lives from the moment of conception. We are formed, we are handcrafted, personally and uniquely designed and created by the God of the universe. God has no assembly line. In today's factories, the emphasis is on automation, getting everything the same, everything identical and exact. has to be cookie cutter. If you're running a factory, unique is bad. You don't want one bag of cookies weighing 10 ounces and another bag of cookies weighing 20 ounces. Unless maybe you're the customer, you're getting 20 ounces for the price of 10. It must be identical, must be efficient and automated. 
But that's the opposite of how God forms and creates each one of us. Each one of us, we're fearfully, we're wonderfully made. Each one of us is handcrafted, formed by God himself. So let's worship God because of his intimacy, his goodness to us. And God formed Adam when he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And again, we see that closeness, that intimacy of the creator. God breathed into Adam's nostrils. How do you react when you read that in the text? I don't know, maybe you feel like Adam's personal space was being invaded. I mean, God probably had to get pretty close to breathe into Adam's nostrils. Maybe you feel your personal space is invaded all the time. Maybe you live with a child who constantly sticks his head right up into your face and demands something, demands something constantly. Hey, I'm hungry, I'm bored. But this is not the intimacy of one demanding something, but the intimacy of one giving something. Not the intimacy of one demanding something, but the intimacy of one giving something. God giving life to his image bearers. As Derek Kidner writes, breathe is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving. God is giving of himself, imparting life to his image bearers. It's the intimacy of the one who loves you and has given life to you. Notice how mankind is described as a living creature. The same term that's used to describe other animals, the sea creatures and the land creatures of Genesis 1 are also described as living creatures. They're all created, they're all alive, they all need to eat and breathe. But as Kent Hughes writes, but God breathed life into him, into man, making him unlike the animals. Man is immortal. He has immense capacity. He is responsible and he has great potential for glory. And this is all the more stunning knowing that we started off as dust, each one of us. And there's a Hebrew wordplay here. Man in Hebrew is Adam or Adam, Adam. The word ground is Hebrew, it's Adamah, Adamah. So not only is there intimate connection between God and man, there seems to be an intimate connection between man, Adam, and the ground, Adamah. That seems to make sense because God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. Adam from the Adama. One commentator, commentator says it's like God formed earthling from the earth. And we see in this wordplay in the Hebrew the dual nature of mankind, both his dignity and his frailty. His dignity and his frailty. Dignity means, well, mankind, we as human beings are raised up from the dust to be God's image bearers. Nothing else in creation is God's image bearers. We have profound and infinite worth and dignity. We're exalted to a glorious state. As Victor Hamilton writes, to be raised from the dust means to be elevated to royal office, to rise above poverty, to find life, to be in control of a garden. He is raised from the dust to reign. But that wordplay may also suggest not just dignity, but frailty. Frailty. Adam's vulnerability is also clearly implied. If the human is no more than dust brought to life by the breath of God, then if God withholds his breath from Adam, 
Adam returns to Adamah. He returns to dust. And so mankind's intimacy, it's important for us to remember as we consider how close God is to us, how close God is to his creation. It's important to remember that that intimacy never removes the creator-creature distinction. Creator-creature distinction. God was and is and always will be creator, infinite, eternal, and unchanging. And from the moment we're formed, we'll always be creature. A glorious creature, but always a creature, never the creator. And after God gives life to man, breathing life into him, forming him out of the dust, it's amazing to see how God just keeps giving. God keeps giving. Let's look at verse 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice that verse 8 says, a garden in Eden. And if you skip ahead of verse 10, it says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Now, if you pay close attention to the text, it seems like Eden is a larger land area, and the garden is only a part of it. Most of the time, we assume that the Garden and Eden are the same thing. We typically say Garden of Eden. And the Bible does use that phrase, Garden of Eden. But if you look closely, there are places like verse 8 and verse 10 that suggest that the Garden is a part of Eden and not the whole thing. That Eden is a bigger land area, a bigger geographical area. It is in this Garden, though, this Garden which is in Eden, that the Lord God put man whom he had formed. And again, what a reminder of God's providential care, God's perfect, powerful, and providential care. God is the one who put Adam in Eden. And God has put you in Prospect Park, or in Drexel Hill, or Havertown, or Philadelphia. God has put you in a home or an apartment as a married person, or a widow, or a single. There is no accident. God has you exactly where he wants you to be. And that's repeated again in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put, put him in the Garden of Eden. And as you consider your own life situation, maybe the difficulties, the challenges, maybe even the unanswered questions in life, you might not know why, but you know who, God, and you know where, right where you are. And we see in this garden where God has put Adam and Eve, we see absolute abundance. Absolute abundance. Let's look at verse 9 again. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, we don't know how big this garden was or how many trees God planted. But we do know this. Every tree was pleasant to the sight. Every tree was beautiful. And every tree was good for food. It was delicious. Beautiful and delicious. Beautiful and delicious. And God is not a stingy God. This God who made countless stars, so many that Abraham couldn't count them all, this God overflows with abundance, with plenty. God is overflow, and he's not holding back or holding out on Adam and Eve. He's lavishing his bounty. God 
is a generous God. God is a generous God. He could have just planted one tree for Adam and Eve for food, and that would have been enough. But it wasn't just one in the garden. It was every tree pleasant to the sight and good for food. And as we think about all the different ways that God has provided for you, met your needs, sustained you day by day, given you everything that you have, everything you enjoy, it makes any lack of gratitude so much more serious and sinful. To consider all that we have, we have to consider how evil and wicked and ungrateful it is when we reject or ignore or despise God's gifts to us. Bruce Watke writes, life in the garden is represented as a banqueting table. A banqueting table, good for food and delightful to the eye. Humanity has no need to eat the forbidden fruit. So let's remember, let's consider the bounty, the overflow that God has given to each one of us and let us worship God because of his intimacy and his goodness to us. But sadly, I just can't help but think of how much forbidden fruit is eaten every year, not just by those outside the church, but inevitably by those inside as well. Pastor Brian Chappell writes that often the evidence of our envy is our debt. The average credit card debt in the United States is $17,000. The average auto loan debt, average car debt is $30,000. And add to that mortgage debt and student loan debt. There's nothing wrong with taking out a mortgage or student loans. We have a mortgage we're paying off. But the cumulative effect of all this debt can be crushing for families today and can reflect a deeper heart issue, a lack of joyful contentment in what God has provided for each one of us. We also notice in this passage two very unique trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll come back to these later on, but for now I just want to note that there seems to be something more, something beyond earthly life that is held out for Adam and Eve. They're given permission to eat from every other tree, but not these two. But for now, we're going to move on to verses 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalia, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We see here there's a single river that flows out of Eden and forms the headwaters of four separate rivers. We can still find the Tigris and Euphrates on our maps today. We don't know much about the other two. There is gold where the Pishon flows, along with bdellium and onyx stone. We see precious metals and jewels. And this isn't even the full description of all the beauty in Eden. We have to look at Ezekiel 28, 13, where God fills in the picture just a little more. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sarduis, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. So as we consider all that God has done for Adam, all that God has provided for Adam, I love how Kent Hughes sums things up. 
naked Adam lacked nothing. Lacked nothing. He was made in the image of God. God had kissed life into him. He was perfect. He was the human sovereign of creation. He has the blessing of God and the unparalleled presence of God. Adam speaks and walks with God as if they belong to one another, writes Bonhoeffer. Paradise it was. So I want to take a moment for us to just review as we uh, consider what Eden is all about. Number one, there seems to be three sections. There's Eden, the garden, and the area outside of Eden. Number two, we see the tree of life. Number three, there's life-giving waters. And number four, gold and precious stones. But wait, as we think about these things, the tabernacle and later the temple has all these things. Number one, there's three sections in the tabernacle, the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. The golden lampstand is like the tree of life. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. There were six branches, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch and three on the other branch, Exodus 37. Number three, water for washing and purification. There's a stand of bronze in Exodus 30 mentioned. Number four, the tabernacle and temple is constructed with gold and precious jewels. So what we see as we connect the dots throughout redemptive history, see what God is doing throughout history with his people, we see that Eden is not just a place, not just a home for Adam and Eve, not just a garden, but a temple. Eden is a temple. Eden was made for worship as the first and original cosmic temple, the place God created to dwell with mankind and to receive mankind's worship. It was created as a temple because mankind was created to worship God. Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. What is the chief end? What is the chief purpose of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we exist on planet Earth. That's why God made us. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul puts it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it makes sense that Eden was created as a temple, as a place of worship where Adam would be in the presence of God and glorify him and enjoy him forever. And this is the only right response for Adam and Eve. Think about all that they've been given by God. They were given life. They were given beauty. They were given glory. They were given a garden paradise with anything and everything they needed. They walked with God. They knew God. And they saw all all that God did for them. And so the only right response would be to worship this great God. There was an intimacy, a joy, a perfect fellowship that they enjoyed with their creator. And that worship of God, we don't see it happening now with all humanity, but that's where all human history is headed. That worship will one day be perfected in the new heavens and the new earth. So what you see in Genesis chapter 2 in Eden anticipates what we will enjoy forever. Revelation chapter 22 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God 
and of the land through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. And the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. And his servants will what? His servants will worship him. Will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. What Eden anticipates, the new heavens and the new earth consummates. What Eden anticipates, the new heavens and the new earth consummates. But we're not there yet, are we? We live in the already and not yet. How do we worship God now, outside of Eden, and as we wait for the new heavens and the new earth? Well, Jesus is the true temple that those other buildings in the Old Testament pointed to. In John chapter 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And in Christ Jesus, if you belong to Christ Jesus by faith, if you are united, joined to him, if you belong to Jesus, we as the church are joined to Jesus as the temple. Ephesians chapter 2. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see the church is the center of worship. That means there's no true worship apart from the church. The church is that holy temple of the Lord, the dwelling place for God. And yet so many professing Christians view the church as optional. It's as optional as the tabernacle is optional, or the temple is optional, or the new heavens and the new earth is optional. Mark Dever writes, Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible. The church makes the gospel visible. The way the watching world sees and knows who King Jesus is, the way that they hear the voice of the Creator and the Savior is the local church. So if you're not committed to a local church, again, it doesn't need to be ours. There are other faithful gospel preaching churches out there. You need to ask yourself, why? Why do I think Christ's body is optional when Christ views it as essential? Why do I push to the side what Christ has placed at the center? Why should I have assurance that I'm a believer, that I belong to Jesus, when the church hasn't affirmed my profession of faith? And we at Risen Hope express that commitment to the local church through membership. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a worshiper of King Jesus. Thank you for being with us here this morning. The church opens wide its doors for all who desire to come to Jesus by faith. We need a savior because 
on our own. We're not worshipers of the one true and living God. You, on your own, have loved someone or something, most likely yourself, more than the one true God. So you need someone to rescue you. You need someone to cleanse you of your sin and guilt. And the Son of God, in love, came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ to live a perfect life that none of us could ever live. And then to die the death that you and I deserve on a Roman cross. And then to rise three days later to prove his victory over sin and death. So if you have yet to do so, if you haven't yet come to Christ, come to him today. Turn over your life to him today. Surrender your life to him today and worship him today. So we bring things to a close. I want to return to my opening illustration. The magazine ad that featured that 30-something woman seated in a chair listening to music on her headphones. Today we might say someone watching a live stream service on YouTube. Certainly nothing wrong with tuning into live stream if you're sick or away. But what's wrong, what's off is that worship always involves a gathered people. A gathered people. Physical embodied presence. And as God himself, the triune God, existed in community, Father, Son, and Spirit, we were created to worship in community. So live stream church, TV church, that's not church. It's no such thing as virtual Lord's Supper or virtual baptism. Jesus Christ is present with his people here through the preaching of the word, through the Lord's Supper and baptisms. He is here among his people now. I want us to leave with four specific ways for us as New Covenant believers, New Testament Christians, to engage in worship. Ideas I glean from reading Bob Coughlin's book, Worship Matters. First, ready yourself. Ready yourself. Plan to come early and stay late. Plan your week around the Sunday worship gathering. Get to bed early on Saturday if you have to, but ready yourself. Second, request. Pray that you'll hear and encounter God in the service. Pray that your heart is ready to serve and to receive from others. And third, receive. Receive. This is the heart of biblical Christianity, knowing that before we have anything to give, we have to receive. It's acknowledging that we have no resources in ourselves and that from him, through him, and to him are all things. Bob Coughlin. Fourth, and finally, respond. Respond. Worship is the only right response to who God is and all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. So when you come here on Sunday, sing with all your heart. Sing with faith. Sing with joy. Raise your hands in worship. Ready yourself. Request. Receive and respond. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. 
ascribe to the Lord, or families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We acknowledge you as our God. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. Oh Lord, how can we give you enough thanks and honor and worship and adoration for all that you have done? God, you have made us, but not only that, in grace you have redeemed us, rescued us, and saved us by sending your one and only son to die, to bleed, to give up his own life, that we might have life. And so God, we praise you for your love. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Next week, Pastor Dave will be preaching about work in the Garden of Eden, how God put man in, in the garden to work it and keep it. And then Rick will speak about the Word in the Garden, the Word of God, how God gave man his perfect, trustworthy, and authoritative Word. Church, let us worship. We were made to worship. Let us worship God because of his intimacy with us and his goodness to us. Let us learn to count our blessings. Let us learn to be giving thanks in all circumstances. I want us, uh, us to leave with this, these verses from Romans and from Hebrews as we think about how we offer up our lives as worship to God. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And finally, uh, from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 13, verse 15. Again, as we consider all that God has done for us, through him, then, let us continually offer up, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And church, just as a reminder, uh, uh, Explore and the Risen Women are meeting, and then there are Costco items to my left, your right. And Hebrews 13, verse 20 as our benediction this morning. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
Should nothing of our efforts stand no legacy?